when I grow up in a year or two or three, I'll be happy as can be, like a birdie in the tree. When I grow up, there's a lot I want to do. I will have real dollies too, like the woman in the shoe. She was a sharp little girl. Everything about her was perfect. She's what you call a perfect, perfect ten. You gotta eat your spinach, baby. No, 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 no. I'm singing to ya. No, 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 no. Hallelujah, spinach. Stay away from my door. Her songs, her dancing, they made millions and millions of Americans feel good about themselves. Shirley always sparkled. She just, she just bubbled. It was not put on. There was just something magical about her. Everybody wants to know who's that great big handsome Romeo I present you right now. Daddy, take a bow. She was good-natured, cheerful, irrepressible, and she knew at every moment exactly what she was doing. She was a diamond in the midst of the Great Depression, a symbol of hope when it was in short supply. And as she grew up, her dimpled smile continued to delight growing legions of new fans, many of whom she would meet as an important player on a global stage. But between youth and maturity was a life lived in extraordinary proportions. The story of a woman whose off-screen adventures would prove as magical as any fairy tale. The little girl who would soon become the world's biggest star was born on April 23, 1928 in Santa Monica, California. Her father, George Temple, was a banker. Her mother, Gertrude, was a housewife who had once dreamed of being a ballerina. Although the couple already had two boys, it was little Shirley who became the focus of her mother's show business aspirations. Gertrude had always wanted, since she was a little child, was to be in show business. And it sounds a cliché, but this was something that uh, she dreamed of. She put her crib uh, right next to the phonograph, and she would play for her from the time she was an infant. She would teach Shirley the lyrics. Some of the first words that Shirley said were lyrics to Rudy Valley songs. But just as Shirley was beginning to walk, America stumbled into a stock market crash that signaled the beginning of the Great Depression. The tremendous crowds which you see gathered outside the stock exchange are due to the greatest crash in the history of the New York Stock Exchange. Millionaires became paupers overnight. Bread lines and soup kitchens and shanty towns began peppering the landscape of America. Luckily, George Temple's steady income as a bank manager kept the family fed. It was also fortunate that Gertrude Temple's dreams for Shirley neatly coincided with the nation's hunger for escapist entertainment. At the tender age of three, Shirley was enrolled with other toddlers at the Meglin Dance Studios in Los Angeles. Ethel Meglin uh, was a woman who put together uh, this uh, dancing school. She was very adventurous and very much of a promoter. She had these kids, the mothers all hoped that because they were right on a studio lot, there would be a chance that they would be seen. And about once a week or once every two weeks, uh, a, a scout would come in, look at these kitties, and maybe use one for a film. 
On one such visit, a talent scout from Educational Pictures noticed Shirley's precociousness and charm. He hired her to appear in a series of short films called Baby Burlesques. of popular movies like The Covered Wagon and Tarzan, where adult characters and themes were portrayed by children. trying to be a mixture of very sophisticated satire with a little tinge of sex. And so people were titillated for more than healthy reasons watching these pictures. a very strange thing. Uh, they played a lot uh, in theaters, in matinee theaters, and there were a lot of out-of-work uh, men at that time, and their great appeal really had to do with, with, uh, with men across the country. One of the most bizarre burlesques featured Shirley's spoof of Marlena Dietrich's role in The Blue Angel. And there was Shirley, you know, with a very provocative kind of a dress uh, that went down over her shoulder and so forth. A Marlena Dietrich, very much of a temptress. From the start, it was obvious that, that she had something that the camera loved. We thought that love was over, that we were really At a time when many Americans were scrambling to earn 10 cents, little Shirley was receiving a generous $10 a day for her performances. But when Educational Pictures stopped production in 1933, Shirley was out of work. All in all, she would later comment, it was a tough spot for any five-year-old. Undaunted, Gertrude Temple took her daughter on the Hollywood circuit, calling on casting agents and movie studios. 
She was smart enough to uh, build up a network of friends who'd feed her information. This studio's casting, they need a little girl. This studio has this property they're thinking of doing. And she was very, very persistent. When Fox Studios announced they were looking for a little girl for a featured role in a big musical film, Gertrude arranged a last-minute audition for Shirley. Her impromptu singing and dancing won her the part and a long-term contract at $150 a week. Cheer offered a message America was waiting to hear. With a little girl, they would never forget. There was a wonderful, wonderful scene in that in which uh, she prompted uh, Jimmy Dunn in this uh, film. And uh, at first they thought they would just exclude that. Right during shooting, she prompted him. Daddy, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for Miss Adams to send for us. Oh, will it be very long? No, not very long. Maybe a couple of hours. Oh. <laughs> I got a surprise for you. She was wonderful at remembering everyone's lines. Oh! Now don't swallow it all at once. <laughs> <laughs> don't I get a kiss? She was optimistic, and she had this happiness about her that at that time, uh, particularly during the Depression, when families were going through such terrible times and they were having such great trouble in bringing up their children, Shirley represented everything that they wanted their children to be. How's that? Whoa. I like you. And I like you. Audiences were instantly taken by the little girl with the big talent. And at the age of six, and already a veteran of more than 20 films, Shirley Temple had become a star. Shirley Temple was a hit in Stand Up and Cheer, but Fox didn't quite know what to do with their preschool prodigy. She was assigned bit parts in otherwise mainstream films. Oh, we saw a cow there, too. No. It was white. It was white? Hopeful that her daughter become a star, Gertrude secretly took Shirley to Paramount Pictures, where she auditioned for the title role of Little Miss Marker. It was a part she easily won. Little Shirley's portrayal of a precocious orphan in the classic Damon Runyon story charmed everyone on the Paramount lot. Harpo saw her on the set one day and he said, I'd like to buy her. <laughs> he said, you know, is there anyone around here who let me buy her? She was adorable. Little Miss Marker was a box office blockbuster and it prompted Paramount to offer Fox $50,000 for Shirley's contract. But Fox executives weren't budging. They had bigger plans for America's dimpled darling. Tell me what you bought me for a birthday present. Oh, no, that's a secret. Will you tell me if I guess? Well, maybe. A 
pair of roller skates? No. Dollhouse? No. Aw, oh, Daddy, if you tell me, I'll tell you what I'm going to get you for your birthday. Oh, no, I want to be surprised. Will you tell me for a kiss? Well, that's awful tempting, but... I bet I know it's a ballet dress. A ballet dress. Now, what made you think of that? Because that's what I want most. Come on, now, you little canoe. You've got to go to sleep. Go on, yeah. I'm going to get a ballet dress. I'm going to get a ballet dress. Don't tell Mommy I told you. <laughs> I won't. Now, come on, you snap those eyes shut. Taking advantage of Shirley's sudden status, Fox reteamed Temple with James Dunn in Baby Take a Bow, a deliberate reference to her show-stopping number from Stand Up and Cheer. But unlike her previous screen appearances, Baby Take a Bow was written especially for Shirley. It provided a custom-made showcase for her amazing charm and talent. Never liked a copycat of the things they do. But it seems that you must have changed my mind. Me? Yes, you. I became a copycat, and I love it too. All the things you go for are the things I go for. I like what you like, beans and oyster stew. And I like what you like on account I love you. I go where you go, any place I'll do. And I go where you go on account I are you playing the game, too? Of course I am. Your old man tied me up so I couldn't peek. Let's you and me fool him. Do you think that would be fair? Why, sure it would. It'll, it'll be a big joke, and we'll all bust laughing. Now go on, get something and cut me loose. When moviegoers went to see a, uh, a Shirley Temple film, uh, they expected to see uh, a good-natured, irrepressible little girl who could appear to be able to solve all the problems that adults had that adults couldn't solve themselves. And they were never disappointed. She was really a getaway girl. You watched her and she was so completely composed and happy and talented and, and up, 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 that she was a, she was a real tonic. By mid-1934, with Paramount, Warner Brothers, and MGM courting the six-year-old, Fox wisely renegotiated, raising the youngster's salary to $1,000 a week. Shirley Temple was now one of the highest-paid performers in Hollywood. Fans adored Shirley, and she accepted her stardom with a maturity and grace rarely found even in older, more experienced stars. And when placing her hand and footprints in cement at Sid Grauman's famous Chinese theater, the loss of a tooth forced her to think fast as a means of distracting the cameras from her suddenly shy smile. 
She thought, well, maybe if I do something different, people won't think that to look at my face, they'll be focusing on what I'm doing. So she suddenly got the brainstorm. She said, oh, I don't want to just put my shoe print in. I want to put my bare feet in. I want to play in the cement. So she was the first person to take off her shoes and put her actual footprints into the cement besides her typical handprints. Capitalizing on the success of Baby Take a Bow, Fox immediately cast their newest star in the 1934 production of Bright Eyes. This, more than any previous production, illustrated young Shirley's ability to portray a fully dimensional character. Dear Lord, please see my daddy and wish him a Merry Christmas from my mother and me and tell him we love him forever and ever. Amen. Mother, do you think you will? I think on this night of all nights, God will listen to the prayer of a little child. Don't cry, Mother. I get lonesome for him sometimes, darling. Don't be lonesome, Mother. You have me. Yes, my own sweet baby. Bright Eyes established a powerful formula for her future roles that struck a responsive chord in Depression-era America. That would be to have her very soon in the movie lose her parents, they get run over by a car, they get shot, they drown, anything to get rid of them so that she would be a lovable little waif. Today your mother got so lonesome for your daddy that she went to see him. All the way up to heaven? All the way up to heaven. You mean my mother cracked up too? Yes. <laughs> and she would attach herself to typically some gruff older man and very soon the gruff older man would mellow and become very sweet I like you you're the only one around here that does they don't like me and listen I don't like them either If it hadn't been for Shirley Temple, being the cutest, the nicest, the most adorable child in the world, and they needed an opposite, dear Gussie, I might have ended up selling hats in my hometown of Atlanta, Georgia. I asked Santa Claus to bring me a doll. Santa Claus? Pooh, there ain't any Santa Claus. There is too. There is not, because my psychoanalyst told me there ain't any Santa Claus, there ain't any fairies or giants or anything like that. I'll bet you'd feel bad if you woke up tomorrow morning and you didn't have any presents. Well, I won't. You want to know why? Because I already peeked in the closet and saw them. I don't care what you saw. There is a Santa Claus. There ain't. And I thank God every day for Shirley Temple. Bright Eyes also gave Temple the opportunity to introduce what would become her signature song. I've thrown away my toys. Bon Bon's play 
on the sunny beach of Peppermint Bay. Lemonade stands everywhere, Cracker Jack bands, belly air, and there you are, happy landing on a chocolate bar. See the sugar bowl, do the tootsie roll with the big bad devil's food cake. Lollipop, it's a night trip into bed. You hop and dream away on the good ship Lollipop. The good ship Lollipop was an immediate hit, and nearly half a million fans purchased copies of the sheet music. When the film turned a profit in only three weeks, it was obvious to everyone who was responsible for its success. For the first time, the Motion Picture Academy grants a special award for the greatest single contribution, and Irving Cobb presents the trophy to Shirley. Oh, thank you very much, Mr. Cobb. Mommy, can I go home now? <laughs> <laughs> But even with Shirley's star on the rise, it couldn't eclipse the financial problems that had been plaguing her home studio for years. It also couldn't change the career course of the skyrocketing mogul who would soon control her destiny, Daryl F. Zanuck. I don't want to go up there. Why, everybody's got to go upstairs, Miss Lloyd, if they wants to go to bed. I don't want to. Look here. Will you go if I show you a brand new way how to go upstairs? How could there be a new way to go upstairs? Now you just watch. I went to the market for to get some beef, and beef so tough, and couldn't get enough. In 1935, Fox Studios first teamed Shirley with the legendary Bill Bojangles Robinson in *The Little Colonel*, creating one of the most dynamic on-screen pairings in motion picture history. Robinson would be on the set with her and teaching her. She would listen to the steps. And one day, her mother said, "Shirley, pay attention." Shirley said, "I am. I'm hearing it." And she got that. She learned the tap steps by listening to them. What's going on around here? Oh. Immediately following the little colonel. Shirley was featured in two more films, both of which confirmed her status as queen of the box office. I'd love to have a little girl like you. Do you really and truly mean that? Cross my heart. All right then, you can have me. Huh? In every bowl of soup I see lions and tigers watching me. I make them jump right through a hoop. Animal crackers and mice. When I get hold of the big bad wolf, I just push 
him and a million bits And I go pull him right down When they're inside me where it's dark I walk around like Noah's Ark I dump my tummy like a goop With animal crackers and my soup Everything Shirley Temple touched turned to gold But her successes were modest When compared with the expectations of the studio's new boss Considered one of the most talented of all the Hollywood moguls, Daryl F. Zanuck was almost a force of nature. By merging Fox with his 20th century pictures in 1935, he was determined to boost the studio's output to include a wide variety of prestige films. To do it, he needed revenue. For revenue, he needed Shirley. When Zanuck took over... The greatest star, of course, in the world suddenly was this child. He had the, he had the great gold mine. I think he probably crossed himself, thank heaven that she was with, with the studio. He was very, very caring about her. So he used top writers and top directors and top costume people, top everything. Zanuck's first move at 20th Century Fox was to create a Shirley Temple story development division employing 19 of his top writers. Although the pint-sized superstar had already fulfilled her three-picture obligation for 1935, Zanuck quickly prepared The Littlest Rebel. He also doubled Gertrude Temple's salary as Shirley's acting coach from $500 to $1,000 a week. Who did that? I did. Had a lot of spunk, haven't you? Well, I'm not afraid of you. Well, I'm glad you're not. I think it'd be awful if a nice little girl like you were afraid of me. Nevertheless, you better mind your manners, young lady, and don't use that slingshot again. I wish I was in Dixie. Hooray, hooray. In Dixie land, I'll take my stand to live and die in Dixie. Away, away. Away, down south, Dixie. Away, away. Recognizing the appeal of Hollywood's newest dancing duo, Zanuck reunited Shirley with Bill Robinson. Shirley and Robinson would also secretly coordinate some of their moves by squeezing each other's fingers as they held hands. still considered no-no for a black person and a white person to touch. So for Shirley to be seen holding hands with uh, Bill Bojangles was really very unusual. And part of the reason it happened was the fact that she was such a tiny child that people said, well, that's not so bad. But also the fact that uh, she herself was extremely naive and it never occurred to her. In the Deep South, those scenes and movies would have to be clipped out. Little Shirley Temple was more than a valuable corporate asset. She had become a national treasure. Even President Roosevelt made a point of praising her infectious optimism. President Roosevelt was alleged to have said, as long as our country has Shirley Temple, we will be all right. Though some viewed it as overprotective, Shirley's mother Gertrude was a constant presence on the set, rarely leaving her daughter's side even for a moment. Gertrude was always on the set. There was nobody going to take advantage of Shirley 
There was no chance that Shirley was going to look anything and be anything except her best. She first of all made most of her costumes, designed her costumes, did those ringlets, exactly 52 ringlets in each, uh, on, in, in her hair. Gertrude Temple was also responsible for helping Shirley memorize pages of dialogue, even though the little girl was barely able to read a script. The secret was in making instruction a household routine. She would have her supper, take her bath, and then after that, Gertrude would come into her room, and they would sit down, and Gertrude would go over her scenes with her. Shirley would lie with her eyes closed while Gertrude read the screenplay aloud, performing each character in the fashion of a radio program. She rehearsed her lines for her. She was really the second director on the set. She had a chair with her name on it, and she would sit on the side, and she would say to Shirley just at the time, Sparkle, Shirley, sparkle! And at that point, Shirley would wet her lips, she would put that smile on, and she would certainly sparkle. Her meals, friends, and studies were carefully monitored. Fox policy dictated that she not be subjected to the gruff and occasionally coarse influences of her fellow actors. She dined in her own private bungalow, she studied in her own private schoolroom, and she even had her own private teacher, a woman who would become her playmate, confidant, and closest friend. We were companions for quite a while. But she always got down to business. She didn't try to monkey out of her lessons. As the teacher to the biggest star on the lot, Frances Clamp's job had special requirements. She had many visitors from all over the world, but if we had uh, time to, to know who was coming, we'd always do geography and uh, customs of that particular country. As an ambassador of good cheer, Shirley personified a fresh optimism that offered hope to a depression-weary nation. It was a profitable message, one that had rescued her home studio. On the brink of bankruptcy only two years earlier, Fox saw earnings soar to $1.2 million at a time when tickets cost only a dime. I don't know if Shirley was aware of carrying the financial stability of the studio on her shoulders, which she did. I know that Daryl Zanuck did not like to have the uh, administration building on the Fox lot referred to as the Temple Building, which it always was when he was not around. But there was no question that Shirley saved that studio. By late 1935, 20th and the Temples renegotiated. The result was a highly profitable and highly publicized new contract. But while George Temple handled the financial negotiations, Shirley had some important requirements of her own including a rubber-tired scooter, a doll carriage, a skipping rope, and a game of jacks. Executives willingly conceded. In the studio, she travels from stage to stage. Every cop has special orders to give her the right-of-way over all traffic, even the fire department. Between films, Shirley amused herself and other studio employees by establishing the Shirley Temple Police Force, a nod to her favorite radio program, Gangbusters. Sporting a junior G-Man badge from a local toy store, Shirley would fine other actors for minor infractions like flubbing lines or delaying scenes. Close friends, of course, would be awarded their own badges. She distributed these badges all over, so it was quite an honor to belong to Shirley Temple Police Force. That was all just a, a gag, but anyway, that's what it was. So it was, uh, it was fun. At only seven years old, 
Shirley Temple was one of the highest paid and most popular personalities in the world. Success seemed assured for the little girl with the Midas touch. But what lay ahead were two questions no one could answer. Were there enough stories for the precocious youngster? And would her popularity survive as she grew up on the screen? By the mid-1930s, Shirley Mania had reached a fever pitch. Product endorsements for Quaker puffed wheat, General Electric, and Packard motor cars sent sales skyrocketing. There were Shirley Temple books, toys, and products of almost every conceivable shape and size. There were Shirley Temple dresses, there were Shirley Temple cutouts, there were Shirley Temple everything you could think. Uh, there was Shirley Temple mania throughout the world. Tottering on the brink of bankruptcy, the ideal toy and novelty company gambled heavily on a Shirley Temple doll and sold an astounding one and a half million of them. Available in 13 different sizes, the dolls virtually created a multi-million dollar toy industry at a time when average family incomes were less than $1,500 a year. Shirley Temple was America's little princess, and her court included a wide variety of co-stars, co-workers, studio executives, and of course, their children. birthday parties were fantastic. Uh, Daddy directed them and produced them, you know. I remember the one that we had out at our ranch was really a fantastic. It was a circus party. He hired the Ringling Brothers Circus. See, you know, growing up like that, I, I didn't even really realize that Shirley Temple was Shirley Temple. She was just another friend from the studio. Shirley's own birthday parties would be grand events, staged for the publicity cameras on the 20th Century Fox lot. Shirley Temple's birthday and the celebrated star has a party and makes a speech. I want to thank you very much. I think it's very nice to have a big party like this. I do remember going to some of the uh, birthday parties that Fox gave for her in the commissary. Immense affairs and... Really quite sad in a way because all these kids in the Hollywood community would show up at these parties and their mothers had gone out and bought Shirley things that they could not at all afford to, to give her as gifts. She never even knew what they were. They were all sent unopened to an orphanage and uh, they would all go and think that this was going to be their, uh, their moment of discovery showing up at uh, one of Shirley's birthday parties. Birthday cake for Shirley Temple at Newark, New Jersey. This is William Brown Maloney, famous editor of This Week magazine, sends it by plane to the little star who is getting along in years. She is seven. Seven years, seven candles, and all good children go to heaven. Can you fly back to New York tomorrow morning? Can you please tell all my friends that I'm sure that they can't come to my birthday party? But will you thank them for the lovely cake? Can we open it now? Greetings from Gracie Fields, new 20th Century Fox star to the world-famous actress, Just Eight. Thank you, Annie Grace. I'm so glad you can come. <laughs> come on, let's have a piece of cake. Thank you very much. Looks like it's going to be good. Shirley Temple receives a pony cart and a five-gated pony as a gift from the Carnation Stables. I want to thank you very much for that lovely little pony. And I'm going to take very good care of little Carnation. In sharp contrast with Shirley's publicized parties were her real-life friendships with stand-in Mary Lou Islieb and the neighborhood kids who shared her love for bike riding and games of all sorts. 
If Shirley was not an average child, she and her parents were determined that she would have as normal a childhood as possible. In 1936, America's Little Sweetheart starred in four films, all custom-designed to set off her star quality. Wouldn't you like for me to live here so I could cut them all down to fit you? No, I'd rather go up to fit the dresses. Oh, you mean you wouldn't like me to live here? Well, I like you, but you see, I'm the lady of the house, and we couldn't have two ladies of the house. No, spinach, take away that awesome greenery. No, spinach, give us lots of jelly beanery. We positively refuse to budge. We like lollipops, we like fudge, but no spinach. Hosanna, I want to make mud pies. In fact, I'd like to be a mess. I want to make mud pies. I know that I'd find happiness If I got jam on my fingers Chocolate on my face And molasses all over my dress Well, if it isn't Miss, uh, Miss... Appleby, Sylvia Dolores Appleby They call me Dimple They go now, darling uh, just a minute. This isn't really goodbye. I'll come back for you real soon. And in the meantime, you won't cry, will you? No, Tommy. But remember, one... one minute of waiting is... is essential to the hopeful. I'll remember. Ladies and gentlemen, just for fun, I'd like to sing the song again the way it would be done by Al Jolson. You've got to ask am I, Ellie? Oh, like the birdies, pretty birdies up in the trees. Pretty flowers, April showers. My mammy, life is divine at a quarter to nine. At eight years old, she was paired with some of the finest performers in Hollywood. Her dancing seemed effortless, but the routines were some of the most demanding ever performed on a Hollywood soundstage. The stuff that she did with Bill Robinson and, and, and Buddy Epson, uh, some of the classic uh, dance scenes uh, in, in all of American film. Keeping up with Shirley was so daunting a challenge that even veteran performers like Jack Haley and Alice Faye found it difficult at times. She was a sharp little girl. She was so sharp that she was frightening. She just, she knew everything. She even knew about lighting. What's your name? I'm Chinese or American. What? In American, it's Barbara Stewart, but in Chinese, it's Ting Ting. Ever the professional, Shirley continued to tug at heartstrings with her incredibly moving performances. Oh, please, Captain. 
anything. Take her. Come on, Bob, let's go. Take her. Are you hurt? I'll be all right. Go with Star. Don't let her out of your sight. I don't want to leave. I don't want to. That's all right, honey. Don't cry. Why are they taking me away from you? What have I done? Little Shirley was now an unqualified superstar, and every public appearance attracted hordes of fans hoping to catch a glimpse of the young phenomenon. Concerned with Shirley's safety, studio chief Daryl F. Zanuck had put her under the direct supervision of his friend and bodyguard, John Griffith. Watch that kid like a hawk, Zanuck instructed him. If anything happens to her, this studio might as well close up. It was terribly important to keep crowds away from her, that people would want to feel her curls to see if they were real, give them a yank. After moving to Brentwood, the new Temple family home featured the latest in security measures. Alarm systems and fences were installed, and even FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover took a special interest in her safety. Though she was closely guarded, nothing could keep the public away from America's little darling. The net is over her head, but the game isn't. Nothing seems to be. We've seen Shirley do so many things well, and this is a new one. It's here at last. Shirley Temple's pony arrives from the Shetland Islands. Well, Shirley, it looks like you're going to take your riding seriously and regularly. When you're the nation's number one motion picture actress, you sure want to see things in the right way. A boat, a party of friends, and a ride up the Hudson. Even on vacation, Shirley was required to make official appearances with important people who were often surprised to meet a naturally rambunctious little girl. And then, when the first lady of the films is entertained by the first lady of the land, they're great on picnics at the president's home. It's great fun for the queen of the films, who is just a little girl. She always used to keep a slingshot in, in, uh, with her, like in her pocket or in her little tiny pocketbook that she had. And she took the slingshot out from kind of from a distance and she shot uh, Eleanor in the rear, which was uh, quite <laughs> dramatic at this particular picnic. Though Shirley still reigned as box office queen, by 1937, Zanuck was wrestling with the dilemma of finding scripts for his biggest star. Shirley Temple was growing older. It was the one aspect of her life that neither Fox nor Zanuck could control. Can't you answer just one question if it is about military matters? Well, what is it? How can I get to be a soldier? You? Really, it's important. Who ever heard of a little girl being a soldier? Run along home and play with your dolls and don't follow me anymore. Running out of original screenplay concepts for Shirley, Zanuck turned to classic literature, even changing the gender of Rudyard Kipling's boy hero Wee Willie Winkie so that Shirley could play the part. Private Winkie, sir. A new recruit. Yes, sir. They'll God honor the queen, shoot straight, and keep clean. Directed by John Ford, Wee Willie Winkie was Shirley's most polished production to date, featured with an all-star cast that included Victor McLaughlin, June Lang and Cesar Romero, Shirley impressed Ford and her co-workers by displaying courage during this climactic stampede scene. The film was a critical and box office success and prompted 20th to feature the youngster in yet another literary classic, Heidi. What's it about? 
It's about the magic wooden shoes. All right, Grandfather, I'm ready. I'll tell you something I'm going to try. Put on your shoes and away we'll fly. We'll take a trip wherever we choose. We'll dance and skip in our little wooden shoes. As the orphan Swiss girl who yearns for the simple pleasures of her grandfather's farm, Shirley gave one of the best performances of her career. You know? Her aunt is taking her to Frankfurt. She's stolen now. Where are they? Stolen? There. Heidi! One unique aspect of the film was the inclusion of a sympathetic female co-star. How do you do, Fraulein Clara? I hope you will be well soon. Not Fraulein. I'm just Clara. And I'll call you Heidi. I was thrilled <laughs> that I was going to be with Shirley Temple. You know, I hadn't even met her yet, but I was, I was very excited. Why do you sit in that chair with wheels? I can't walk. I fell last time and hurt my back. Then you couldn't climb the mountain with Good Peter and Swami and Burley. Who are they? Are they friends of yours? Yes, they're the grandfather's goats. And Peter, he's the goat general. If I had one wish to make, this is the wish I would choose. I'd want an old straw hat, a suit of overalls, and worn-out pair of shoes. Just let me roam around, laughing at big city blues. Now ten years old, Shirley was encouraged to play as if she were somewhat younger. By now, she had spent more than half her life in front of the cameras and her films were in danger of becoming exercises in nostalgia. My dear radio audience, now I shall do some of the songs I've had the pleasure of introducing to you. It was not so very long ago when you heard this little ditty on your radio. On the good ship, lollipop, it's a sweet trip to a candy shop where bonbons play on the sunny beach of Peppermint Bay. And do you remember animal crackers in my soup? Monkeys and rabbits loop the loop. Gosh, oh gee, but I have fun swallowing animals one by one. My agent called me one day and said, you're going to make a Shirley Temple film. I said, oh, no. He said, Gloria, it's wonderful. I said, what's wonderful about it? W.C. Fields said, never be in a movie or on the stage with dogs or children. It's a losing battle. So I asked to see Daryl Zanuck, and I said, Mr. Zanuck, I'm a dramatic actress. It's not for me. And he said, Gloria, uh, you could be in film for the next... 10 years or on the stage and nobody would ever see you or hear about you but if you're in a Shirley Temple film millions of people will see you Tony why not what do you mean broadcast from here it's possible isn't it why yes it could be done by remote control sure chief we could run wires down like we did on the Bradbury courthouse then the kid could stay in the program oh please try it with all her talent Rebecca deserves a chance oh Tony please do 
I hated the part because it was it was uh, a stupid leading lady, you know, no dramatic scenes, nothing that I really wanted to do. But working with her was a joy. She was a miracle. Did they come? Did they come? To the hum of the drum of the tin pan parade, better run, better run, cause it's some toy trumpet brigade. Here they are, there's the leader passing by, any grand he's a star, he's the leader of the band. There he goes with the trumpet tootin' high, tootin' low, when he blows, he's a rootin' tootin' and they tootin' low, tootin' high. He's a new tutor in with the tin pan parade, there they go, passing by, there was some toy trumpet brigade. to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I do. Then we're licked before we start. In 1938, Shirley Temple was teamed with veteran stage comic Jimmy Durante and acclaimed hoofer George Murphy in the highly enjoyable Little Miss Broadway. You're a cup of coffee. Oh, oh, you're a peachy pie. We should be together, you, you and I. Seen here is a rare outtake, featuring Shirley in what would have been a show-stopping musical duet. Don't be so shy, Jimmy. Here's your big chance to tell the world what you have done for the dance. Your honor, this man is the biggest of them all. What he's been doing dances since the dog comes Rudder's ball. Jimmy started trucking and he started to the queue. And pecking and the big apple, just a mention of you. You mean he started, though? He did. How do you know? How do I know, Your Honor? Why, he told me so. I didn't exactly start him, but I made him what they are today. Well, what are they today? Passing. And why are they passing? Because we've got something new. Market Exhibit A. And we'll show it to you. Market Exhibit A. Exhibit A! Exhibit A! It's just a hop, skip, jump and slide. Now tip your hat as though you're saying bye-bye. Stop, look, straighten your tie. That's the expression, eyes to the sky. Another highlight was this elaborate courtroom number, which showcased Shirley's still considerable talents.
To maintain Shirley's place in the spotlight, Zanuck saw to it that no other young actresses be allowed to compete with Shirley on screen. There was talk that I got as much fan mail because I played a cripple girl in Heidi and probably that Mrs. Temple would never use me again. But Mrs. Temple requested me for The Little Princess. So you see, there's a lot of talk that's not so. Just a moment. Our princess seems to be in a hurry. Could it be that she's going to a ball? Come back here and clean up that hearth. I didn't want to do it, I'll tell you. I did not want to be mean to Shirley. Predictably, anyone who was mean to Shirley on screen would pay the price. I had the most wonderful things to eat that anyone ever had. Why, you little liar. You haven't even had breakfast. Pardon me, but I really have. And if you'll excuse me for saying so, it isn't polite to call people liars. How dare you talk back to me? I doing that? I could see the look in her eye as she turned around to dump these ashes on me because she, she didn't know what was going to happen any more than I did. My goodness! Oh! Oh! So sorry! <laughs> and she goes out the door and she closes it and finally they said cut and everybody on the set was screaming. And all of a sudden, the door opens, and in comes Shirley, and she walks right up to me, and she looks me all over again, up and down, rather, and she runs over to the director, and she says, can we do this again? And I, I wanted to kill her. <laughs> Produced in Technicolor, The Little Princess was a box office success. But by the end of the 1930s, sales of Shirley Temple dolls had fallen a dramatic 80%, and critics were beginning to temper their reviews. Shirley's growing up, but her stories aren't, they complained. But while the public still adored their Shirley, Daryl F. Zanuck was publicly offering $25,000 to anyone, anywhere, who could come up with a fresh idea for one of her films. For the first time in years, he also considered loaning his top star to rival studios. Shirley's once idyllic relationship with Fox was crumbling, and the innocence of her childhood was fading. Fast. Faced with confronting the harsh realities of war in Europe, Americans were actively distracting themselves in lavish fantasy worlds. I hereby dedicate the world's fair to all mankind. Hollywood, too, was creating big, costly productions with films like Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz. Zanuck had worked out a deal that he would loan Shirley Temple to MGM to make the movie Wizard of Oz. In exchange, they got Clark Gable and Gene Harlow for a picture. Then that fell through. Gene Harlow's untimely death from uremic poisoning had squashed the deal that might have placed Shirley on the yellow brick road. Instead, Zanuck rushed the preteen child star into his studio's own Oz-inspired fantasy based on the classic fairy tale, The Bluebird. You're tired, aren't you? We shouldn't have gone there at all. You didn't find the bluebird, did you? We forgot to look. That always happens there. You wouldn't have found it anyway. I'm afraid we've just wasted our time. You wouldn't want to go back, would you? Oh, no. Never. Never. Then you haven't wasted your time. Uh, the Bluebird came out in 1940 and laid literally a big, big egg. It had been so expensive to mount, 
in the color production they did. And they had put, had so many hands washing this story. The Bluebird lacked all the charisma that was in The Wizard of Oz. It was too strong and too heavy-handed. Hurry now, quick! Up into your clothes and be off. You've got to find the Bluebird. The Bluebird? Of course. The bird that is blue. The Bluebird. But why? Where must we find it? Why? You want to be happy, don't you? Of course. But what do I want with the Bluebird? Oh, what a stupid girl you are. Don't you know that the bluebird means happiness? How could it? Why didn't I say it did? Now get dressed, both of you. Or better still, I'll do it for you. Quiet now. Quiet. There was none of the uh, dewy-eyedness, the, the happiness, and certainly there was not the music in it. The great. There was only uh, a couple of numbers, and they weren't uh, really of um, of great value. These little people whistle. I know that. Come on, we've got to go. Oh, you can't go yet. Oh, can't you stay a few minutes longer? We shouldn't, Granny. But I wanted you to hear them. I've taught them to whistle a tune. Anything you like. You name it, Mitchell. Ah, uh, how about Farmer and the Dell? Oh, yes. Ah, uh, uh, who wants that silly thing? How about uh, Lady O? That's the one. Lady O, sing a happy jingle. Lady O, get a happy tingle. Lady O, maybe every single care will go with a lady O. And so it failed miserably uh, at the box office, and I think that really ended uh, Shirley's career as a child star. The Bluebird was plagued by negative press and poor reviews. And by 1940, Shirley Temple's slipping popularity was reflected in a 44% drop in Fox profits. For the studio, Shirley Temple films were becoming a losing proposition. Well, one of the... The difficulties in being a child star is that nobody wants you to change. Because if you change, then you won't be the commodity that has been successful. So you get older, and you're no longer a child star because you're no longer a child. In 1940, 12-year-old Shirley Temple made Young People, another year of backstage corn about ex-vaudevillians who try to gain acceptance from their country neighbors. 
You must be in the wrong town. Ain't no theater here. There isn't. What do you do for entertainment? Oh, just sit around and wait for somebody to make a fool of themselves. That doesn't sound like much fun. Maybe, because you ain't the one that's doing the setting. <laughs> <laughs> A bus, take a car, hail a cab, and there you are on Fifth Avenue. Every Joe, every Jane walks along the dreamer's lane on Fifth Avenue. That's Fifth Avenue. Where they stop, window shop, and their hopes are so high. Pricing rings, pretty things. That they can't afford to buy But they smile, they don't care Everyone's a millionaire When you're strolling on Not even Shirley could sparkle brightly enough to make the film a box office success. It's hard to say goodbye to a good friend. And that's what you've been to Dad, Mom, and me. You've applauded when you liked us. And even given us a little hand when you didn't. You've been swell. And we'll never forget you. Because, honest to goodness, we could never have brought you as much happiness as you brought us. So, now it's our turn to applaud you. Before the picture even reached the theaters, Fox announced that the little girl who had saved the studio from bankruptcy just six years before was being released from her contract. They were developing a, a great many other stars at Fox. And so Shirley's days at Fox were really limited, I think, because of that. Uh, the money for production were going into those films. As a matter of fact, uh, one Sonia Henney film made as much at the box office at that point as three of Shirley's. And so Shirley, at the age of uh, 12, was literally has been, and she left, and all she got out of it was a few old costumes and her practice piano. Shirley had saved the studio, earned them multi-millions, but she had done that one unforgivable thing. She wasn't young and cute, and people's taste had changed. Within weeks, Shirley's studio bungalow would be turned into offices, and the private dining room where she celebrated her birthdays would be off-limits to children. That's studio life. When you're finished, you're finished. If you're no longer under contract, why well, then they, they have no more obligation to you. It was a very cold, very... Uh, Strange, strange situation. But it was, uh, she finished her work and that was goodbye. After appearing in 44 films in just nine years, Shirley Temple was unemployed and preparing for a new life off screen. In 1941, while America was preparing for World War, Shirley Temple explored new territory. She had enrolled in the prestigious Westlake School for Girls and even relocated to MGM with a much-heralded new contract. But her first and only film for the studio was a disappointing romantic drama entitled Kathleen.
1942, she was finally given a role that acknowledged her status as a charming teenager, appearing opposite fellow child star Dickie Moore in Miss Annie Rooney. Operator, connect us with Hollywood, the Edward Small Studios. We want to talk with a very glamorous young lady. One moment, please. Miss Annie Rooney speaking. Oh, hello, everybody. Here she is, a brand new Shirley Temple, glamorous and exciting as Miss Annie Rooney. Dickie Moore is Marty, a little on the sad apple side, until he met Annie. It's funny how a little thing can change a man's whole life. In that film, I was called upon to give her her first kiss. I mean, you should see that kiss. It was the most innocuous thing that ever happened. I barely brushed my lips against her cheek. But uh, it represented to the world the symbolic loss of the most beloved child that the world had known. Shirley's transition into more mature parts intrigued famed Hollywood producer David O. Selznick. In 1943, he offered her a contract to join his growing stable of stars and cast her in his powerful drama about America's women on the home front since you went away. Critics who had earlier dismissed Shirley's acting ability now applauded her on-screen renaissance. Look Magazine even welcomed her to adulthood as 1944's most promising newcomer. At the age of 16, Shirley had re-established herself as an appealing and accomplished young actress. I'm acting in your own best interests. You're going to make me an old mate. Only until you're 18. A young actress, it seemed, with a very definite interest in establishing a mature and responsible life of her own. In 1944, Shirley Temple met a dashing Air Force sergeant named John Agar, a man whose appeal was not only based on his good looks, but on the fact that he was definitely not in show business. It seemed to be love at first sight uh, for both of them, uh, with good reason. He was, he was anyone's idea of Prince Charming. After a whirlwind romance, the two stunned their families by announcing plans for a small private wedding. But producer Selznick had grander notions and turned the young couple's wedding, held on September 19, 1945, into a media event. Eleven years ago, she was Little Miss Marker. Today, she's Mrs. John Agar. After a five-month engagement, Hollywood's famed Shirley Temple becomes the bride of aviation engineer sergeant John Agar, Jr. At Shirley's Brentwood home, Friends offer their congratulations. Sergeant Agar, on a seven-day furlough to wed his 17-year-old bride, will head for overseas as soon as he completes his basic training. But for the future, a fond world wishes them health and happiness. Setting up housekeeping on the grounds of the Temple family home, the Agars began their new life together in what was once the life-size playhouse that had been built for America's favorite child star. For a while, the newlyweds seemed to be a picture-perfect Hollywood couple. But when Agar began flirting with an acting career, Shirley began to have serious misgivings about her husband's true intentions. She always had said, I want a husband who's not involved in show business. 
Well, lo and behold, less than a year after they were married, suddenly David Selznick says to John Agar, gee, I think you should be in movies. And before the words were out of Selznick's mouth, John Agar said, yeah, I'd like to do that very much. And that was really the death knell of the marriage. Shirley and John were soon romantically paired in two films, including John Ford's highly acclaimed Ford Apache. Fort Apache, last western outpost. Here live the long, lean cavalrymen who fear no living soul. Here, too, are their women, wives, mothers, sweethearts. Brought to the screen with dramatic intensity by director John Ford, Fort Apache stars John Wayne, Henry Fonda, Shirley Temple, with Ward Bond, Victor McLaughlin, Dick Foran, Guy Kibbe, John Agar. But tensions between them boiled beneath the surface. Unfortunately, he turned to drink at a certain time, and according to Shirley, became quite abusive. Shirley's fairy tale romance was on the rocks, a situation made worse by the kind of career pressures generated by films like That Hagen Girl, co starring Ronald Reagan. But the incongruous pairing of the teenage Temple and her older leading man led Time magazine to warn that. Only moviegoers with very strong stomachs may be able to view an appearance of rebated incest as a romantic situation. She was uh, romantically supposed to be involved with him. I mean, this was ludicrous to look at because she was only about 16 at this time. So that it looked almost uh, immoral for uh, Reagan, who was this middle-aged man at this point in his life, to be attracted to Shirley. On the home front, Shirley's relationship with husband John Agar continued to deteriorate. Even the birth of her first child, daughter Susan, in 1948, could not rescue the marriage. She'd reached the point where she just said this pretense of smiling in public and pretending that things were going well just wasn't worth it anymore. On December 5, 1949, after four years of marriage, Shirley filed for divorce citing mental cruelty, verbal abuse, and drunkenness as her grounds. But the little girl whose resilient optimism had soothed a nation's battered and bruised spirit during the Depression would not linger in self-pity or self-doubt. For Shirley Temple, there were new worlds to conquer. A new beginning was about to dawn. Cleaged. Pardon me, but are you by chance Lynn Belvedere, the author of Hummingbird Hill? I am the author of Hummingbird Hill, but not by chance. Oh, I've been looking everywhere for you. I heard you were registered here as a student, and I had to see you. I'm sorry, young lady, but I do not sign autographs. Oh, I don't want an autograph. I'm Ellen Baker. How do you do? I'm on the Daily Lion the college newspaper, and I want an interview with you. After a brief return to Fox and guest appearances on numerous popular radio programs, 21-year-old Shirley Temple eventually removed herself from the Hollywood scene and embarked on a long overdue Hawaiian vacation. It marked one of the first periods in her life when recreation was not encroached upon by the demands of celebrity. It was also here that she would meet the man who would change her life forever. Charles Black, the dashing son of a prominent San Francisco family. 
And one of the things she found most appealing about him was that he had uh, was not familiar with her work. She liked that very much because he responded to her as a as an attractive young woman and not uh, as a as a famous movie star. Within a year, the two were married in an intimate ceremony in Northern California on December 16, 1950. Now free of career pressures and family ties, Shirley and her new husband could focus on starting a family of their own. Son Charles Jr. was born in 1952. Daughter Lori Alden was born in 1954. For Shirley, these years were among the happiest of her life. But though her family came first, she had not completely retired from show business. The release of her early films to television had sparked a new interest in America's Little Princess, so much so that Shirley seemed ideal as the host of a network anthology series devoted to live-action interpretations of classic fairy tales. Shirley Temple. Not yet? Not even the sound geese. I didn't know Mother Goose was real. Real? Why, bless you, of course she's real. And you'll see her and her geese very soon. She always comes to the fair on the first day. Queen of Hearts, she made some tops. All on a summer's day. <laughs> I have no time for being a queen of anything. Father says the fair is to make money. Holly Baker, is that the way you take care of my booth? Shirley Temple's storybook became a much-loved staple in American homes, running for over two years. How can they be so thoughtless and cruel to leave you like this? And do you know what else is left lying here? All the happy songs of children on a holiday. They've forgotten what it is to be young. Now in her 30s, Shirley seemed restless for the kind of public service work she had once enjoyed as a child. Cost a whole dollar to join. And that's an awful lot of money. But won't you please try hard to find that much? This button is to help fight infantile paralysis. It only costs a dime. Won't you please buy one? A veteran of numerous fundraising programs and charity efforts, she now applied her talent to organizations devoted to the public good. I think she had a way of meeting people. I think she uh, had a certain uh, personal dignity, uh, unconscious, but uh, she knew how to greet people. She knew how to get along with them and always very gracious and uh, uh, seemed to be interested in what they were representing. By the mid-1960s, Shirley Temple Black became a champion of the power of individuals to effect social change, an activist for the cause of civic responsibility. 
She could now use her status as a much-loved celebrity to participate in arts and cultural organizations, as when she joined the board of directors of San Francisco's prestigious film festival. But in 1966, Shirley's celebrity status helped to ignite public controversy when she denounced the Swedish film Night Games for being indecent and unworthy of consideration for the festival. It is a melancholy thing to witness what I regard as the debasement of childbirth and sex, high estates to most, including me. So I raised my head and I bumped it on what I think is a very low projection. When other members of the festival's board of directors overruled her objections and decided to present the film, Shirley resigned her seat on the governing body. Fortunately, there were several who felt that the ex-child star's conservative stance only proved that Shirley was a woman who was not afraid to stand up for her convictions. They ran George Murphy's old movies on TV. He made it to the Senate. They're running yours too. What office do you have in mind? And well, I've thought of this already, but I can't quite visualize California with a governess. More than ever, she was encouraged to take a more active role in public affairs. Shirley had been active um, in the Republican Party in California. Her presence at a fundraiser for some Republican senator or congressman always helped to bring in the crowd and make the party a much better one. It was just a, a natural move that she made. I mean, what other arena could you possibly go into after you've been through uh, uh, films as a star? You've gone through television. Uh, she certainly wasn't interested in stage. 1967 was a year when politics and entertainment made strange bedfellows. Shirley's former dance partner, George Murphy, was headlining in the Senate, and former co-star Ronald Reagan was performing as the governor of California. It was also in that year that Shirley Temple Black decided to run for Congress. So from that point, politics seemed perfectly natural. And if George Murphy and Ronald Reagan can do it, she saw no reason why she couldn't do it. One-time child movie star Shirley Temple Black announces her candidacy for Congress. Today, I will announce that I will campaign for the congressional seat left vacant by Art Younger. Unfortunately, her campaign quickly became overshadowed by the star's controversial support of the aggressive bombing of North Vietnam. The anti-Vietnam demonstrators are doing a great disservice to our country. They're dishonoring our young guys who have been killed in Vietnam, and they're dishonoring the wounded, and they're playing right into the hands of the North Vietnamese and the communists. But try as she would, it seemed Shirley the politician couldn't shake off an unflattering comparisons with Shirley the child star. The result was a crisis of confidence that suggested Shirley Temple Black's politics might be as old-fashioned as her films. There, there now. All your terrible fears are over. Your father and Colonel Morrison are going free. 
Though she lost her congressional bid, Shirley had found a new passion in politics. I will be back, and I plan to dedicate my life. I am dedicating my life and my energies to public service because I think our country needs it now more than it ever has before, and I want to help. She began campaigning on behalf of fellow Republicans and was a staunch supporter of Richard Nixon during his 1968 presidential campaign. When Nixon won the election, he didn't forget those who had contributed to it. He also didn't underestimate Shirley Temple Black's unique qualifications in the field of diplomatic protocol. In 1969, he appointed her to the post of U.S. Representative to the United Nations, serving on the Social, Humanitarian, and Cultural Committee. The duties of the office, the the duties of the office on which I am about to enter. So help me God. And everyone was uh, very, very, very impressed, and many people were very surprised at the degree of professionalism and commitment that she brought. It was not a celebrity taking on some glamorous role. She was, uh, she was in the trenches. But in 1972, Shirley was faced with a battle more dangerous than any fought with a Hollywood studio or foreign dignitary. At the age of 44, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. It was a personal crisis that she did not shield from the public spotlight. When uh, Shirley Temple Black got breast cancer, which was in 1972, there was an issue that people didn't want to discuss. So when Shirley Temple had the mastectomy and actually was brave enough to come out and admit it, then an incredible number of women started to go to their doctors and go to have tests. After a successful operation, Shirley Temple Black resumed her life of public service. In 1974, she was appointed by President Gerald Ford to be the United States Ambassador to the Republic of Ghana. Mrs. Shelley Temple Black, U.S. Ambassador-designate to Ghana, arrived in Accra today to take up a new job. I have the honor to present Her Excellency, Mrs. Shelley Temple Black, Ambassador of the United States of America. Sir? Your Excellency, I am deeply honored to present the letters by which the President of the United States Gerald R. Ford accredits me as Ambassador Extraordinary and Plenipotentiary of the United States of America to the government of the Republic of Ghana. But if one doesn't perform the job and doesn't accomplish anything, then one can sit in, um, in a lovely house and look at old scrapbooks and be extremely lonely. I like to work. Her reputation was not limited to the United States. Her movies were shown on a global basis. So um, these foreign leaders, when they uh, met Shirley, they couldn't help but recollect the pictures they saw when they were much younger, and so was she. I think I've been most fortunate by having the opportunities presented to me because of little Shirley. Mm -hmm. She's, um, She's opened a lot of doors for me. But when Secretary of State Henry Kissinger was refused an audience with the Ghanaian president, the result of tremendous communist pressure, the rebuke to the United States inspired Shirley to request an immediate reassignment. It was now that a new chapter of her extraordinary life would begin. 
this time as White House Chief of Protocol, the first time a woman would be so honored. We wanted somebody that would add some spark, add some personality. We very shortly began to focus on Shirley. Mr. President, it's a high honor indeed that you've bestowed upon me. It's a great honor to be the first woman chief of protocol for the United States of America. I don't know why, Mr. President, it took 200 years for one of us to get the job, but I'll do all my very best work to try to fill all the various assorted sizes of shoes uh, of the distinguished men who have been chief of protocol. After serving under President Ford, Shirley's diplomatic career shifted with the elections of Presidents Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. During the Reagan administration, she served as a foreign affairs officer with the State Department, training U.S. ambassadors and their spouses. When George Bush became president in 1988, Shirley was again appointed an ambassador, this time to Czechoslovakia. The post offered a fitting climax to a career that was every bit as extraordinary as the woman herself. After penning a best-selling autobiography in 1988, Shirley Temple continues to enjoy the love of her husband, her family, and growing legions of new fans, fans who continue to discover her classic films on television and home video. I don't think audiences ever stop uh, feeling affection for Shirley. I think uh, people still do. There's no reason not to. She was a very appealing child, and she's a very appealing woman. Still involved in the Republican Party and living in Northern California, she continues to enjoy an active, though somewhat more private, life. A life that seems certain to find its own happy ending. I don't, can't think of anyone who is as great a survivor as Shirley Temple Black. She faced life with marvelous, optimistic manners. She's a great survivor. As the precocious waif with the bright eyes and curly hair, Shirley Temple became the truest sort of royalty, a princess of the New Deal, and a reminder that American spirit can often be expressed through song and dance. She represents so much uh, the American image of what we wanted to believe that America represented, that the United States represented. And I don't think we'll ever forget her for that. In a time of great despair, her movies gave the country and the world joy and hope. And as an adult, she has continued to open her heart and make a difference in the lives of all who've known her. Shirley Temple is an extraordinary woman. Her entire life has been one of such decency and integrity. She's a wonderful representative of her society. Few people coming from outside the career service had as many personal assets to represent the United States as Shirley Temple Black. There didn't seem to be anything artificial about Shirley. She had a certain personal dignity, and she's really interested in people. She was a miracle. Indescribable. It's impossible that one child was all those wonderful things, but she was. She was darling. 
You know, I know everybody says Shirley Temple was darling, but she really was. She was a very sweet little girl. I think Shirley Temple will best be remembered as a unique icon of the American film, almost the personification of Hollywood. She very easily electrified a crowd. She'd done it on the movies. She sure did it in the political arena. We owed a lot. The country owes a great deal to Shirley Temple. Brighten up that corner and smile. 